you would this morning turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 1. And again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelt between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahau, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, according, accompany, excuse me, the ark of God. And Ahau went before the ark. It says, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets, cornets or however you want to pronounce it, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom under the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all his house and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the men as women, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michael, or Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will be yet more vile than this, and will base in mine own sight. And of the maid servants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael the daughter of Saul had no child under the day of her death. Here we find in this experience of David, which is also recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13, excuse me, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, 
his efforts to bring the Ark of God back to the city of God. To give a little context, uh, we go back to the book of Exodus chapter 25, and in Exodus chapter 25, Moses is commanded of God to build an ark. Now, as God is speaking to Moses, he lets him know that there will be a tabernacle that will be pitched. He said, I will give you the pattern. And in the very first thing that God gives a pattern or instructions of what to be built is the ark itself. He lets him know there will be coming instructions for the tabernacle. There will be other instruments and elements and furnishings. But it's the Ark of the Covenant that God first tells him how to build. He lets you know in Exodus chapter 25 the size of the Ark. It was to be two and a half cubits wide. It was to be a cubit and a half across and a cubit and a half high. So somewhere around four foot by two foot by two foot. Somewhere in that general uh, size frame. Not a real large box. It would have sat on this table that's before me. This was to be made out of shittim wood. And that was to be overlaid with pure gold within and without. And then on the edge of the ark itself was to be crown work. In other words, it would be kind of like lace work on the edge of the ark. And then uh, there was to be four uh, uh, holders, if you will, uh, placed on the four corners uh, that a, a rod could pass through. And he was also commanded that they were to make rods or staves of shittim wood, and they were to be covered with pure gold. And then he was to make a seat or a lid to cover it over, and that was to be, uh, of course, the same size as the box itself. It was to be uh, two cubits, two and a half cubits by one and a half. So it's, again, by about four by two. It also was to have crown work, but this was to be made of solid gold. So the box itself was made of wood covered with gold, but the lid itself was to be solid gold. And then there were to be two cherubims, one on this end and one on the other end. And these cherubims were to be of beaten work. That means one solid piece of gold. It was to be a cast piece, but it was to be of beaten work. It was the work of this man's hand. And you'll find that it was made exactly as God says, and these two cherubim would look upon each other, and their wings would be outstretched. So imagine you have a box sitting here. It's got a gold lid sitting on top of it. And on top of the lid, you have two cherubim facing one another, their wings outstretched toward each other. And the Lord tells Moses it's there at that place between the cherubim that the Lord would meet them. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 37, the Bible says through the mouth of Isaiah that God dwells between the two cherubim. That would be the place, the most holy place that would be upon the earth was right there between those two cherubim called the mercy seat. So in the Ark of the Covenant, we'll find later that there were going to be three things placed therein. First of all, the tables of the law were to be put therein. Also, Aaron's, uh, excuse me, yeah, Aaron's rod that budded and also a golden pot of manna. Back in Exodus chapter 16, God was, uh, Moses was commanded by God that they were to take a golden pot, a golden bowl, and take some of the manna and store it up. And it was to be stored up with the tables of the stone. Now later, when the Ark of the Covenant is to be built, but the tables of stone and also that bowl of manna would be placed therein. Then we come to the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers chapter 17, there comes a controversy among the people of Israel over who had religious authority in the land of Israel or among the people of God. And there was a question about Aaron's authority. And so God gives them a plan of how they're going to figure out Aaron's authority. He says, you take 12 dead rods, 12 dead sticks or branches, and you write the name of the household of all the 12 tribes of Israel, but for Levi, you put the name Aaron. And so they did exactly that. He said, you lay it up before the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. They came back the next morning, and that dead stick 
all of a sudden was alive. Here it was, it had buds, it had leaves, it had almonds in full uh, fruit ready to be eaten. Overnight, God uh, brought that back to life. Number one, that showed that, that, was the, that uh, Aaron had the government of the house of God. It was Aaron's place to oversee God's house. Also, we see a beautiful picture of God bringing life from the dead. So in that uh, box, this Ark of the Covenant, again, you have the law itself. Then you have this pot of manna, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living bread. And then you have a picture of God bringing life from the dead. And you also see a picture of God's authority. Now, if you'll recall, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in, and he would take a golden censer. And with that censer, he would dip it in the blood of that lamb that had been slain. And he would sprinkle that blood upon the altar, upon the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle that blood there. God, of course, would come down. And as you see there, a picture of the blood of the sacrificial lamb covering over the law. In other words, fulfilling the law where you and I could not. A beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mercy seat. In fact, as you turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, he's called the propitiation for our sins. That means the mercy seat for our sins. So the Ark of the Covenant was a very, very important part of the worship of the children of Israel. It was something that they revered. It was something they held very sacred. However, we find there comes a time in the lives of the children of Israel that they forget where the sacredness is regarding this Ark. They began to trust in the Ark, rather the God of the Ark. And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, you have Eli who is ruling in the land of Israel. He is their priest, and he has two sons, uh, Phinehas and Hophni. And they're very wicked, very evil. And the children of Israel, they go out to do battle against the Philistines. Well, they're losing the battle. About 3,000 people die, or 4,000 people die in a battle. And so they come up with this idea. Well, here's what we do. We'll call for the ark, and it shall save us. They didn't say we'll call for the Lord and he will save us, but we're going to call for the ark and it shall save us. And so they sent for the ark and Eli allowed for the ark to come out to the battleground. And as the ark came into the camp of Israel, the people of Israel let out a shout. And as they let out this shout, the children, uh, the people of the Philistines, their military, they became very afraid. But there was someone among their military very wise and let them know that if they went up, they would overcome the Israelites. And they did exactly that, and 30,000 more were slain that day, and here they had trusted that the ark, it would save them. Obviously, the ark in and of itself had absolutely no power. Uh, when Moses had it made, it had no power whatsoever. It took the uh, presence of God for that thing to have any significance whatsoever. But the children of Israel, who had learned to trust in the ark instead of the God of the ark, now they're going to see with their own eyes that without the presence of God, uh, they would have no blessing whatsoever. But the very same ark that in 1 Samuel chapter 4 uh, causes over 30,000 to be slain who trusted in it, you're going to find that it's taken to Ashdod, which is the capital city of the Philistines, and it's put in the house of Dagon. They take it to the house of Dagon because here they're going to uh, bring in uh, the chief uh, uh, sacred item of the children of Israel in service to their God into their chief God's house. Uh, they're going to offer to their God. See, the Philistines, they were pagans. They believed in many gods. They didn't deny that Jehovah was God. They just said he was one more God among many. And so they were going to sacrifice to their God, Dagon, by honoring Jehovah and bring this into the house of Dagon. That was the best they knew to do was to honor Jehovah by bringing this ark into the house of Dagon. And here, Dagon is a God who pictures strength. He's a picture of uh, wisdom. 
Uh, he's a picture of their ability in the Philistine uh, nation. Well, God is going to show them uh, that their God has no wisdom and their God had no strength because they come in the following morning and when they do, Dagon has fallen over. Uh, so this ark that would not save the children of Israel in the chapter before now all of a sudden causes this false god, god Dagon to fall over. Uh, again, 30,000 die trusting in the ark, but now here he is uh, in the house of Dagon, and it causes Dagon to fall over. They prop Dagon back up. Uh, wouldn't you hate to serve a God? You've got to prop him up. I thank God he props me up. He holds me up. Uh, I don't uh, ever have to prop up God. I want to magnify him. I want to hold him up in my life in a way of honoring his name and hopefully uh, causing others to respect him. Uh, but he certainly doesn't need me in order to do that. Uh, he certainly has propped me up in my life. Many times I have fallen and he has uh, raised me back again. Uh, many times I've been downcast and through his spirit I've been uh, recovered over and over and over. So the second day they go back into the house of Dagon and this time uh, Dagon has fallen over. His head is cut off and his hands are cut off. What does that show? That his wisdom is gone and his might is gone. It lets him know that the God that the Israelites serve, Jehovah, is the only God of wisdom and the only God of strength. Well, this, of course, greatly upsets uh, the Philistines, so they want to get that out of their city. Uh, after Dagon is destroyed by the Ark of the Covenant, which once again, just the chapter before, the children of Israel said, it shall save us. It did not save them, but it does destroy Dagon. Uh, so they want to get it out of the city, so they're going to send it down to Ekron. And the Ekronites say, no, you don't bring that thing to us. You're just bringing it here to slay us. Now, as you read 1 Samuel chapter 5, you're going to find that this uh, ark brings a great curse upon the Philistines. Uh, the Bible says that uh, um, many of the Philistines died. It slayed many of them. Uh, those who did not die, they had emeralds in their secret parts, and I won't get graphic today. You can go home and uh, study what that means. Uh, anyway, very unpleasant uh, uh, curse that the Lord sent upon the Philistines because here they have stolen the ark of God. Uh, so then we find that in 1 Samuel chapter 6 that they send it out of Ekron and they're going to bring it uh, to a place in Israel. Um, all of a sudden I can't remember the name of it. Again, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 6. They bring it to a place called Bethshemesh. And when the children of Israel, when they see it coming, they're greatly excited about it. Now before the Philistines send it to the children of Israel... They asked their diviners what they ought to do. They said, well, first of all, don't send it back empty. You need to make some kind of offering. Their God is very upset, and we need to appease that God. So here's what you do. You take five golden emeralds, and you take five golden mice, and you put it in that ark. You send it back with a blessing. You send it back with a sacrifice. Uh, what they were doing, they were showing the judgment of God upon their land. The mice had come into their fields and marred their land, destroyed their crops. Many of their people died, and the ones who didn't die, they were cursed with these uh, emeralds that had affected them greatly, and so they're going to make this offering. They also say, you take a new cart, and then you take uh, milk, uh, milk cows, and you set it before uh, that, uh, that cart, and then you place the ark thereon, and then you take it to the children of Israel. Now, it's interesting how they do this. They put it on a cart. Just like David will do in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. But here we find that the Philistines, they didn't know any better. They hadn't been told how it was supposed to be handled. Uh, they weren't aware of all that. And so they do this, and God does not smite them. God does not put them to death when they load that ark here upon this cart. Now we find in uh, uh, hmm, Numbers chapter 4. 
verse 15, that God tells Moses that of the tribe of Levi, there was a specific family that was to handle the Ark of the Covenant. His name was Kohath. And him and his sons were to have the responsibility of the Ark of the Covenant. And God let them know that they were to bear the Ark of the Lord, that that was the burden of the Kohathites. In other words, bearing up the Ark of God was to be a burden to be borne by men, not by beasts. In other words, this Ark, which is a picture of God's mercy, was to be borne up by men, not by beasts of the field. And the children of Israel knew this. This God explicitly told them again in Numbers chapter 4. Not the only time he told them this. So they were very aware if they had read the word of God, exactly how it was they were to handle the Ark of the Covenant. They do not obey, they do not follow the will of God, and they suffer for it. Now here, the Philistines, they don't know any different. And so they put it on this new cart, and they send it home. Well, when it gets to Bethlehemus, we find that they look inside the Ark of the Covenant, and God smites 50,070 men in one moment. Now this Ark that could not and would not save the children of Israel against the Philistines and 34,000 died in 1 Samuel chapter 4 obviously has a lot of ability when it is mishandled. God sees, God's observing as they're mishandling his Ark. Uh, They're uh, not doing what God has commanded and God is very particular about how it is to be handled. And so here the children of Israel, they're not obeying God. They look therein and 50,070 in one moment are smitten by the hand of God. Obviously, they want it out. They want it gone. So the Bible says in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 21, the last verse, it says, They sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come you down and fetch it up to you. And so they did, and it ends up in the house of Abinadab. And the Bible says it will be there for 20 years. So, of course, during this time, Saul is anointed king. Saul reigns, and during his reign, the ark is completely forgotten. Now, it's in the house of this man for these 20 years, but the children of Israel, they do not do as they're commanded about the worship of the ark. That tells me that for 20 years, the high priest is not sprinkling it with blood on the Day of Atonement. For 20 years, uh, they're not doing as God had commanded them during the life of Moses of how they were to honor God by this ark. But now that David is through with battle, David has now deposed Saul through the hand of God. God has brought Saul down. David is reigning in in Israel. David has uh, settled uh, the city of Jerusalem. For the first time, it's been overtaken by the children of Israel. For many years, they had tried to conquer this city. They could not. Now David has conquered the city. He's going to make it the capital city of the land of Israel. And so now he wants to pitch a tent, the tabernacle, here in the city of God, the city of David. And he wants to bring the ark back to its rightful place. Now what David desires to do is a good thing. What David wants to do here is the right thing. But how David does it is the wrong way. God is very specific about how we worship him. There is a right way to worship God, and there is a wrong way to worship God. The Bible makes it very clear through the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. When he was speaking to the woman at the well, uh, he lets her know there in Samaria that God seeketh those who worship him, true worshipers. He says, and God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it is vital that you and I, we come before God, and our worship is spiritual worship. But it's also worship that's based on the truth. That's what God seeks to worship him, is those who will worship him in spirit 
and in truth. Our worship shouldn't be dead. It should not be without feeling. It ought to have some emotion connected with it. It ought to have feeling connected with it. But it should not be completely guided by emotion. It should be guided by the truth of the word of God. Uh, there are things that we do here in the New Testament church because God has authorized it to be only this way. And you may say, well, we can get too legalistic. We can if we're not careful. But at the same time, we can get too loose as well. And what we do in the service of God, we ought to do according to what the word of God has commanded us. If it's not authorized in the New Testament, we should not do it. If it's not given to us by example in the New Testament, we should not worship in that way. And we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that God is very specific about how uh, he is to be worshipped. So here is David. Notice it says he gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Now as you read in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, this same experience, it says that he gathered together the chiefs of hundreds and thousands and inquired of them. Notice who he doesn't inquire of. He does not inquire of the Lord. He doesn't even inquire specifically of the Levites. He inquires of the chief men, the noble men of the land of Israel. And the Bible teaches us in the multitude of counselors their safety. And that's generally true. But just because a majority is for something doesn't mean it's right. I suspect it was a majority that was crying out, crucify him, crucify him, when the Lord Jesus was standing there before Pilate. They were wrong. Uh, in the days when the children of Israel went in to spy out, the, spy out the land, and 12 spies went in, and 10 come back and give an evil report, uh, the children of Israel, they listened to the majority, and the majority was wrong. Uh, the majority is not always right. I don't care what we're talking about. If we're not following the word of God, we've got to be, uh, don't follow the majority, follow the word of God, in other words. So here we are, David is consulting with 30,000 men. To say, well, they are all the same opinion. It must be the right way to go. Again, if you're, uh, I don't care if there's 30,000 or 50,000. If you're violating the word of God, it's still wrong. I don't care how many are with you in it. Uh, you can have a huge house full that are wrong, and you're just as wrong whether there's a big crowd or no crowd. So here is David consulting with 30,000, inquiring of the Lord, uh, excuse me, inquiring of men instead of inquiring of God. You and I, before we uh, come to the house of God, we ought to inquire the Lord. Now, I think you and I know how we're supposed to worship. I hope we understand that by now, that we come together in simplicity, that we follow the New Testament model, that we come together and we sing a cappella hymns, meaning we sing with our voice only, uh, that we don't have a piano, we don't have an organ, we don't have an orchestra, we don't have bands, we don't have drums, all those things, because God has not authorized it in the New Testament. In fact, uh, we find that the Apostle Paul, when he write, wrote to the church at Corinth, he likened the instruments of this world as uh, really dead things. When he talks about uh, uh, the symbols and such as that that people would use in this world, he says, I could have all that. He says, but no charity. He says, all that is just dead. So we're not uh, authorized in the New Testament church to bring those things in for our worship. We come together, we sing with our voices, and those are the sacrifices of praise. Say, well, I don't sing very well. You may not. I may not. God's uh, not real concerned about that. Now, if I'm going to go to a concert and I'm paying money, I hope they know how to sing. <laughs> but when I come to the house of God, I'm not coming here for a concert. And I don't care if you sing with perfection. In fact, I've been in congregations that were very well educated in their singing. And there was no spirit whatsoever in their singing. It was all very mechanical. You might as well just have had an organ or a piano in there playing because that's exactly what it sounded like. 
But when I go into an old Baptist church and I hear old Baptists who know uh, how to follow the Spirit of God, and even though we may not all be in tune, and we lift up our voices to praise Him out of a sincere, dedicated heart, that thrills me far more than any uh, professional musicians could ever do in this world. I've been to some of the greatest, uh, some, sing, heard some of the greatest singers in concert, and I enjoyed it okay. Uh, however, it did not fill my soul like it does when I come to an old Baptist meeting and hear the saints of God sing the songs of Zion. And I hope to God that we never become mechanical in our singing, that uh, it is felt from our heart. That's exactly what God intends it to be. And then we join together in prayer asking God to assemble with us and to bless the service in his name. And then we hear a man of God stand before the people of God using the word of God and hopefully his knowledge of that word and through the power of the spirit of God proclaim to God's people the gospel of the everlasting grace of God. Uh, that's the uh, totality of our worship right there. It's very simple, but it's very effective. It's done me a world of good in my life. It has fed my soul. It's nourished me. It's kept me going in the service of God. It's kept my faith strengthened now uh, for over 30 years. And I thank God for the simplicity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And would to God we would never mar it uh, by trying to bring new things into the house of God and think that that would be okay. And I don't care how big the crowd is that says it's fine. If it's not according to the word of God, you'd expect the judgment of God against us in that. And it may just be that God just simply withdraws his presence from the place. Anyway, so David, he chose uh, 30,000 men. And here they go, and they go to this place, Baal of Judah, to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelt between the cherubims. And notice verse 3, it says, They set the ark of God upon a new cart, just like the Philistines did. Listen, our service to God ought to be different than the people of this world. We shouldn't do things exactly like the uh, other religious orders of this world. There ought to be a distinction of the house of God. It shouldn't, our behavior in the house of God and our worship shouldn't mirror what the world is doing. It ought to reflect what the word of God teaches. Now, if they're doing things right, thank God they are. But you and I were commanded by the word of God how we're to do these things. And we're to always follow them. Uh, we're not to deviate these, from these things from the right hand nor to the left. Uh, but we're to maintain these things until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here they set this ark on a new cart just like the Philistines had. I don't want my worship to be like the Philistines of this world. I want my worship to be according to the manner that the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles uh, worshipped. I want it to be like those uh, uh, first century Christians we find in the book of Acts, how they worship. That's how I want to continue. Why? Because it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we enter into. And we're worshipping him. And if we're worshipping him, he's the one that dictates uh, what kind of worship he receives. If you were coming to worship me, I might could tell you how it is I want to be worshipped. But you didn't come to worship me, I trust. I trust you kind of worship none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, as Brother Matt prayed in his opening prayer. That's the purpose of this gathering. It's the purpose of this meeting. It's the purpose that this church was established. And it's the reason I believe this church continues uh, to, uh, to this day is because we have tried through the help and grace of God to maintain the order of God's house. <laughs> So here they are worshiping just like the Philistines. And for a while it seems to go well. The two sons of Abinadab, his name means, uh, my father's name of, is honor or noble. He has these two sons, Uzzah, who means strength. And another son, Ahio, who means friendly. And there's a lot of folks in this world worshiping and on the outside it's friendly. And it looks like it has just a lot of strength to it. 
There are folks gathering this morning that have a lot more folks sitting in pews than a lot here today. And they may be friendlier than I am or you are. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is with them. That doesn't mean that they're honoring the Lord in their worship. That doesn't mean that they're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Now, I will say this. I don't want to be critical. They're doing the best that they know. And thank God they're trying to worship. And I'm not going to mock them. I'm not going to criticize them because it's the best they know. It's our responsibility to teach them better uh, and uh, show them the good and right way and ask them to come and see. And hopefully uh, they would see the simplicity of God's house and be satisfied with the fatness of God's house. See, it's a simple house, but it has a lot of fatness to it. I mean, it will uh, satisfy uh, the part of man that God intended it to satisfy. Uh, he did not intend it to charm your flesh. Uh, it's not here for your entertainment. It's not even here for what you necessarily can get out of it. Uh, it's here to honor God, to satisfy him, and to bless his name. And I trust when we do that, there's a lot of fatness that God sends back our direction. Anyway, here you have strength and friendliness leading uh, the ark of God. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is in it. Notice, they come of all places. They come to a threshing floor. You know what a threshing floor is for? It's where the wheat is brought after it's harvested. And it's there that it's crushed. And there to be tossed up into the air, there would be a fan. And there would be a fire. And the husk of that wheat would be caught by the wind and be driven to that fire and burned away. In other words, the impurities, the undesirable part of the wheat, would be done away with. Interesting what's about to happen at a threshing floor. They bring this cart to the threshing floor, and when they come to the threshing floor, this ox begins to stumble. Number one, the ox wasn't supposed to be the one uh, carrying this cart to start with. It was supposed to be the sons of Kohath. They were the ones who were supposed to be carrying it, and they were to use two staves of shittim wood that were overlaid with pure gold. And they were to bear it with the, uh, it was to be their burden. They were to feel the weight of what they were carrying. That means it ought to have rested upon their shoulders and been important to their heart. Uh, that oxen didn't care the first thing what it was dragging behind it. Uh, it could have had a, a, a load of feed, a load of commercial goods, or the ark of God. That ox didn't know the first thing about what he was toting, but the people of God did know what that was and what it represented, and they should have known better. If they'd have just consulted the word of God and inquired of the Lord, they would have found very clearly written in the word of God how it was they were to do what they're doing. So of all places they come to, they come to this threshing floor of Nacon. And here this ox, he begins to stumble. And uh, Uzzah, again his name means strength, he sees that the Ark of the Covenant is starting to tumble off of that cart. And so what does he do? He thinks, well, I'm strong enough. God's not. I'm going to reach out. I'll take care of it. He's going to steady the cart. How does he steady it? He reaches out and he touches the Ark of the Covenant. This man whose name means strength all of a sudden becomes very weak. God could have taken care of that Ark. And I believe God would have taken care of that Ark. It may have fallen off. I don't know. But God would have preserved it. But either way, this man reaches out again. His name means strength. But here all of a sudden you're going to see how weak that he is. And in this threshing floor, you're going to find that David's motivation and what David is doing is going to be found out. God is going to prove him here, and he's going to drive away the impurity. Here he's going to drive away the things that God never commanded David nor the children of Israel uh, to do. And so here in the threshing floor, as that ark begins to uh, fall off, and as it reaches out, God smites him on the spot. The Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled against us, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. 
as you read in First uh, Chronicles chapter 15, when David goes back, he lets them know that God brought a breach upon us because how they had done wrong. Well, so David is very angry, and he's also afraid. Notice it says, verse 8, and David was displeased. David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Now, you can be displeased all you want to be with the house of God. But what really matters is whether or not God is pleased or whether God is displeased. Uh, I want to be pleased with you every time we meet together. But what really matters is that God is pleased with us. We ought to live in such a way that we're trying to uh, live in unity one with another, peace with one another, in harmony with one another, showing love one to another. That ought to exist in the house of God. And if it does it before long, God will be displeased. But here David is, is displeased with the Lord. Well, David hadn't stopped to think about how God was displeased with him. And then the Bible goes on to say that David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How should the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, I'm just going to give up. Now, again, what David wanted in bringing the ark to the city of God was not wrong. Bringing it to the tabernacle was exactly what needed to happen. It should have happened long before this. It shouldn't have sat in Abinadab's house for 20 years. But it has. Now, David, he's got to try to figure out what is going on here. What has gone wrong? Uh, I believe that my desire was right. I believe that my desire to serve the Lord was correct. I've won the battles. I've put to flight the enemies. I've done what God's commanded. I waited patiently on the Lord until he took Saul out of the way. I didn't raise up my hand against the Lord's anointed. Why would God uh, bring this into my life? Why would he strike this man dead who was only trying to protect the ark of God? Well, the Bible lets us know that for three months this ark dwells in the house of Obed-Edom. Now, Obed-Edom is an interesting name. It means servant of Edom. Edom is a picture of the flesh. It's a picture of bondage. It's also a picture of uh, condemnation. But notice why the ark of God is here in the house of Obed-Edom, meaning the servant of the flesh or the servant of condemnation. What happens? Uh, this ark of mercy uh, brings great mercy upon the house of Obed-Edom. And for three months, his house and himself and all that he had is greatly blessed because the ark of the Lord is here in this place. I tell you what, the mercy of God can overcome uh, all the problems of your life. Uh, you can be an Obed-Edom Obed where you have served the flesh. You have served the world. And it felt like you were in the pits of hell. But once God moves into your life and once God's take, God takes over and you experience the mercy and the grace of an almighty God, he can overcome all the things that Edom can bring into this life. You won't be the servant of Edom anymore. You'll be the servant of the Most High God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, here this man for three months is greatly blessed, and David, he hears about it. Verse 12, it says, and it was told King David, saying, The Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom unto the city of David with gladness. And notice this, it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord, David has done some inquiring over the last three months. He's done some reading and some studying of the word of God. You may have a desire of something towards the Lord, but you better check first of all, if it, especially it's it, if it goes against what's customary. Check the word of God to see if you can find evidence in the, how, in the word of God to support whatever it is you're desiring. If not, leave it alone. If you can, then do it. 
Here David, he understands that it was right that the ark of God be back in the house of God, the tabernacle of the Lord. He understands that they have done wrong and there was a right way uh, to handle the ark of God. And notice again, it tells us that when they go back the second time, that here these men, they bear the ark of the Lord. What's happened now? The sons of Kohath have taken over. They're doing exactly what God commanded in Numbers chapter 4. By the way, back in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God also told them not only was this the burden of the Kohathites, he said that any man that touched the ark would be smitten. So God had already told them that all the way back in Numbers. So anybody that says that God was unfair with Uzzah, Uzzah should have known exactly what God said in the book of Numbers, what would happen to somebody who touched the ark of God. Well, now here they put their staves through the two rings on each side. And now these men, they've lifted it up and they're bearing it upon their shoulders. And the Bible says they go forth six paces. And when they do, we find that David, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. David is very excited and he had every right to be. Again, our worship should not be dead. It should not be without emotion. It ought to uh, move our heart. It ought to stir up the soul. It ought to uh, move within the inner man and cause that to well up in praise and admiration of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with feeling our religion, uh, feeling the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It ought to uh, nurture in us a desire, an emotion, a love, a drive, if you will, a zeal of God uh, that causes us to uh, just praise His name. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. There was nothing wrong with what David is now doing David danced before the Lord with all his might and notice this and David was girded with a linen ephod David had removed his royal clothing David was wearing just the simple clothing of the priests he's wearing a linen ephod why is that important because later his wife is going to accuse him of something and it shows where her mind is David has brought himself low David here is serving as a servant as a priest and then a king. David is putting himself where he ought to be, beneath the Lord Jesus Christ, beneath the Ark of the Covenant. And so he, here he is wearing the linen ephod, and so he's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the Ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael and Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So now David's doing things the right way. Now, if you notice, there's not a lot of difference between what happened the first time and the second time. The first time, they load up the ark. David begins to dance. This time, they load up the ark, and David dances, makes offerings. But the difference is they're carrying the ark the right way. It's not a beast of burden that's carrying it. Now it's the burden of the sons of Kohath. They're feeling the weight of God's ark upon their shoulders. And I trust they were feeling it upon their hearts as well. And now they're bearing it the right way. David knows they're doing it now according to the word of God. And so now as David dances before the Lord with all of his might, and also the children of Israel uh, all together in praise and worship bring up the ark to the city of David, uh, there's great rejoicing and great happiness except in the heart of one person. And you know it's amazing when God is blessing, it seems sometimes there's always going to be somebody who's very sore about it. Somebody who is not pleased that God is blessing. And we shouldn't let that turn our attention. We should not let that distract us from our service to God. 
And I have to admit there's been times when I've looked out and I see that folks uh, or maybe a handful seem very displeased in the service of God. But it was clear that God's spirit was moving among the house of God, among the people. Who just keep focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> if they're not being blessed by it, that's their problem. Uh, there's something wrong in their heart and in their mind. And the Lord can take care of that. Well, here is Michael and she sees David and she's very upset. Now, David, before he goes in to bless his own house, he's going to bless the children of Israel. Notice what he does. He gives to everyone, men and women, a cake of bread, a good piece of flesh, and also a flask of wine. So he makes sure they have bread, flesh, and wine. In other words, it's a great day of mirth and rejoicing. So then David returned to bless his own household. David saves his own house for last. He's not uh, arrogant. He doesn't have an ego. He doesn't say, I'm putting my family first. After everybody else in Israel has been cared for and blessed, now David is going to go home and bless his own household. And when he does, in verse 20, it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaid of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. Now, some have said David had uh, gone naked there. He had not. What David had done, he had removed the kingly robes. David that day, as he led the procession of the sons of Levi, the sons of Kohath, he did so wearing a simple linen ephod. He didn't go out there in a scarlet robe. He wasn't wearing blue. He wasn't wearing purple that day. He was wearing a very simple outfit. He was wearing a white linen uh, robe, if you will, and in that sense, he had uncovered himself. She was very upset that here her husband, who was the king of Israel, the man who was reigning in the place of her father, had uh, removed the royal robes and instead were wearing the robes of the priesthood of the Most High God. This lets me know about Michal or Michael that all she was concerned about was her royal place. Here I am, a queen over Israel. And my husband, who is the king, has shamed himself this day because he made himself just like the base fellows, uh, these shameless uh, individuals, these vain people of the nation. In other words, he's being just like the common man of this land. Well, how was the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into this world? Uh, the Bible says that the common people heard him gladly. Why? Because he was very common in his appearance, and he was also willing to sit down with publicans and sinners. He didn't come uh, wearing robes and crowns. He didn't come in great shining glory. He came as a simple uh, human being. Uh, clothed in flesh. The Bible makes it clear in Isaiah 53 that his, uh, uh, his appearance when you saw him, there was no beauty about him that when you should see that you would desire him. There was nothing extraordinary about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was nothing wrong. In fact, it was altogether right that day uh, for David to lay aside his royal garments. Why? Because the true king, Jehovah, uh, was coming into the city of David in the form of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God would meet the children of Israel. And so David had done right. He had laid those garments aside. And instead he was wearing the simple linen ephod. Coming before God in a very simple way. Coming before God in the right way. Coming before God like you and I should. In simplicity, sincerity, and honesty. So David says to her, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel, therefore will I play 
before the Lord. He's just letting her know your attitude, your motivation is altogether wrong. All you're focused on is royalty, on the glory of the throne, on the power that attends uh, the kingship of David. He said, that's not where our focus is this day. The people of Israel, the king of Israel, our focus is upon Jehovah. We're uh, focused on, upon that uh, sacred box where God would come and meet with his people. That's where our attention is, and her attention is not in that place at all. Notice again it says she looked out her window as she does. She most likely came and looked out of a narrow place. And out of that narrow place she looked in a very narrow way instead of seeing uh, the broadness of the blessings of God. All she could see is here David has laid aside his glory. Much like the Lord Jesus Christ many years later would lay aside his glory to come into this world to deliver you and me. David this day understood that the glory was to be on the covenant, the ark of the covenant, the ark of testimony. That box that God had commanded Moses to be built, that God would dwell and meet them between the two cherubim. So David, after he got it wrong the first time, he got it right the second time. He did what was pleasing in the sight of God, not only in his action, but also in his intent. His heart was in the right place. God didn't condemn his joy. There was every reason to be full of joy that day. But notice he was a man of joy with simplicity. Again, he laid aside the royal garments of Israel, recognizing that it's Jehovah who truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So he tells this woman, he says, it was before the Lord. In other words, what we were doing was what God's will was. You can criticize, you can complain, you can murmur, you can be dissatisfied about it all you want. In other words, he says, but we're going to serve the Lord the way the Lord has determined and commanded us to serve him. And the last verse of this chapter says, Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child under the day of her death. A child of God that wants to be critical of the people of God who are serving him in sincerity and truth, who are worshiping him the way he has dictated his word, people who want to be critical of that, they're going to be very barren of joy, they'll be barren of happiness, and bearing, barren of the blessings of God. This woman was barren until her death. Here she despised David, and through that she despised the Lord. And so the Lord made sure that she was barren the rest of her days. She never enjoyed motherhood because of her critical spirit against God's anointed David and the way that he respected the Lord and respected the Lord's ark that day and how that David worshipped him. I tell you, my beloved, it... It behooves us to be careful and mindful of our spirit uh, towards the Lord, uh, towards his worship, and also towards those who worship him. Here, this woman despised David. Why did she despise him? Because the way he worshiped God. I should never despise you, and you should never despise me if I or you are worshiping God the way that God has dictated his word. Now, if we deviate from that, we ought to admonish and rebuke and exhort one another uh, how we ought to worship God better or more in, in, in better compliance with his word. But when we are, just remember, Satan is always going to try to send somebody to spoil the day. He always, and you may bring him one Sunday, I may bring him the next, but he's always going to be here. He likes to show up where the Lord's people are. He doesn't have to worry about the bars and the Wicked places this world, they're already doing exactly what he wants. So he wants to come here and try to destroy the joy 
of this place. There's all sorts of mirth going on in houses of ungodliness in this world. He doesn't have to worry about that. That's covered. What he does want to do is destroy any joy that's a godly joy found here in the house of God. And there'll be Michaels from time to time that come among us that want to despise us for nothing more than that we are serving the Lord and they despise our service towards God. Don't worry about them. She was barren the rest of her days and folks like that, they'll be barren. They'll be empty. They won't experience the fullness of the grace of God like you do when you try to serve the Lord according to the word of God. So again, David learned by experience, he should have already learned it by reading the word of God, what it was to worship God incorrectly and deviate from his word. And it cost a man his life. This wasn't the first man that died over the ark. Again, we saw when the children of Israel first received it, they looked in the box and 50,070 died that day. 1 Samuel 4, when they said, it will save us, 30,000 of them died that day. So many had died over this ark. It had smitten many in Ashdod and Ekron. It had killed many individuals, but it's also blessed far more. The Lord Jesus Christ, remember this, when he comes, the Bible says he'll be the lion of the tribe of Judah. When he comes back the second time, we're not going to see the meek and lowly lamb. We're going to see the one who's going to separate his sheep from the goats. And toward his sheep, we'll find a, a Christ that is full of blessing, full of mercy, and full of compassion, and full of grace, who's going to change us into his image. And there we shall be with him forever and ever in glory. But for the wicked that day, they are going to see the wrath of the same God that has showed us great mercy. It's amazing how this same God to one can show such mercy and to another great wrath. But even regarding the ark, they saw some the blessing of God and some the, mercy, uh, the, the judgment of God over their dealings incorrectly, unbiblically with what God had given them. So it is vital as we come together in the house of God, in the house of worship, and we put our focus on the true Ark of Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, our mercy seat, that we handle him the right way, that we worship him the biblical way, that we do what the word of God has commanded us, and no more and no less, but that we comply with his commandments. For in that, there are wonderful and rich blessings to the heart and the inner man of the child of God that will sustain you, will nurture you, encourage you, strengthen you, and propel you forward in his service. May God bless you, brother.